you know, as we've mentioned several times, through the month of December, we focus on our international mission connection through the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, and we call that offering the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. That's named after one of the heroes of Southern Baptist life, a woman who dedicated her life to taking the gospel to unreached people and spent her life doing that. She is a short woman, but was an incredibly brave woman and a hero of Southern Baptist life. One of the things that sometimes we as a church and many churches can struggle with is because the mission field that we support is so far away, um, we just simply raise money and we pray, we, we pray for them, but we don't actually get to see and be a part of what that's doing and how God is using that. And so what I wanted to do this year is be able to put some, some names and some faces with how God is using you and our church and many, many other Southern Baptist churches across this country uh, to touch lost people with the gospel of Jesus and get the gospel to places that it's not been before. And so this morning and tonight with us in our evening worship time together, we have got what I would call heroes of Southern Baptist life. And we have today Greg and Donna Fort all the way from Africa, several places in Africa. Um, Durban, South Africa is where they're about to be. But for the last 30 years, uh, Greg and Donna and Greg, longer than that, have been missionaries, your missionaries in Zimbabwe, um, carrying the gospel there. So would you welcome Greg and Donna this morning? Greg, good to have you. So glad you came all the way here. Um, and uh, tell us a little bit about you, your family, and um, about, about what God's doing in your lives. Um, so Donna and I have served in Zimbabwe for 30 years. Uh, when we left, we had an almost three-year-old son. Uh, Donna was seven months pregnant. Uh, we delivered two boys on the mission field, raised them. They're all now back in the States. Uh, I've got a brother, Gordon, who's a senior ambassador at the International Mission Board. Another brother, David, that has served with the board first as a general surgeon and now leads in uh, staff development and in taking care of the needs of our missionaries emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And so it's a, it's a phenomenal heritage. Um, Don and I actually retired um, and um, at our reappointment service last month, uh, Paul Chitwood, who's our new president, looked at us and said, some people even fail at retirement. And, um, <laughs> So we failed at retirement and are headed back to Durban to re-engage in the mission task. Tell us about um, how God, the 30 years, and you grew up in Zimbabwe. I did. And your parents were IMB missionaries, is that correct? That is correct. And so but tell us how God has used your family there for that 30 years. You know, when you sit across um, kind of a dusty entryway to a house with a man that is sitting on an upended bucket, and he looks you in the face and he says to you, if your God cannot help me, I might as well die. You have this deep realization that people who are in deep bondage need to be introduced to one who is the bondage breaker. And so it was an incredible privilege to be able to share with this man how God loved him, knows him by name, so much that he was willing to sacrifice his son for this man's deliverance. You see, the spirits would wake this man up in the middle of the night, unbeknownst to him, and he would leave his hut, go out, and he would work in people's fields all night long, and he would wake up in the morning having no idea where he had been or what he had done. 
mean, you can imagine ladies being married to a guy that just gets up and leaves, and he had been married three times, and each of those three wives ended up leaving him. Well, it was remarkable to see, y'all, as he came to our services and the third night came forward and said, I'm willing to trust that your God can deliver me and bring deliverance to me and to give me a new start in life. And God broke all of the bondage, all of that demonic stuff that was going on in his life stopped. He was able to, to, to remarry, to start a new family, and to build a godly heritage. So it's been an amazing privilege, y'all, to see our great God do a great work because we're obedient to go and tell the story to his glory. It's the story of Jesus Christ. That's awesome. So, so y'all retired, okay? How many of you in this room are retired? Raise your hand if you would. So a lot of you are retired. Congratulations. Um, you retired, but talk a little bit about the, uh, the process and, and what God, God has done to you to take you out of retirement, to send you back to a new experience, to a new place, new language, new assignment, all of that. Um, as, as Robert shared with you, Don and I did retire. We actually retired from the mission field, and uh, I pastored a church in Oklahoma for two years. Um, but I've just found um, in, in my soul and in my spirit that God has called me to be uh, a missiologist, uh, somebody that just believes that the gospel is worth taking to the ends of the earth. Y'all may not know, we live in an incredible time in, in the world today. Do y'all know that the, this is kind of a, a byline, but the fastest growing church in the world today, you'll never guess, it's in Iran. Let us think about that. The fastest growing wow. church in the world today is in Iran. Um, we are counting about 69 disciple-making movements among Muslim peoples in the world today. Um, just so you can also be encouraged from, from China to Cuba, Brazil to South Korea to the island of Madagascar, people are approaching the International Mission Board and saying, you guys have been doing missions for 175 years. God is calling us to the nations. Can we cooperate, work together to better do the task of missions? And so when we were approached by um, our leadership in Southern Africa, and they said, Craig, there's the city of Durban, uh, three and a half million people, a major port city, um, people from all over Africa that live and work in the city of Durban. And we believe that God is just leading us to ask you and Don if you'd be willing to come back and engage in the task of, of catalyzing those churches to reach lost people, uh, to help them understand the gospel, but also through them then to reach the nations. It's like it was almost too good to be true. And so Don and I, um, I just turned 60, for those of you that may want to know, and it's amazing that at this stage of our life that God would be willing to call us back to entrust to us a, a great mission field and a great opportunity. Awesome. Um, Greg and Donna tonight are going to be in a worship service that we're having. We have a business meeting, but then after that at 6 o'clock we have a time of worship together. And Greg and Donna are going to be sharing more about their story and about what God has done and is doing through them. So I hope you'll come and be, be a part of that. Greg, um, tell us why, tell us what the Lottie Moon Christmas offering means to you and why our church should take that seriously. It takes about $62,000 a year to sustain a missionary unit on the field. So y'all's goal of $100,000 will sustain a missionary unit and a, a half of another one uh, for an entire year, which is an incredible investment in eternity. 
So as Don and I go, we go knowing that um, our salary will be met. Uh, the car that we will drive when we get there, uh, when we initially get there, we'll be living in an Airbnb. Uh, Y'all will be able to, to, you know, Lottie Moon will fund that for us. Materials that we need, the trainings that we will do to catalyze these churches, all of those things are funded through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Um, and 100%, y'all, it's, it's, to me, it's the only offering in the world where 100% of what you give goes overseas uh, to be invested in eternity. It's a great investment. Awesome. Well, let's pray for you real quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the work you're doing through the Fort family. And as they begin this new endeavor, this new chapter, Lord, I pray that you would empower them and strengthen them. I pray that you would make the time that they have with their family and friends uh, for the next month or so uh, refreshing and encouraging. And Lord, I pray that you would use them in this new assignment to an even greater, greater extent uh, than you've used them their entire lives. Lord, I pray that this next chapter would be the sweetest chapter. And Lord, that our church would get to be a small, small part of that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, take them and turn them to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2 um, this morning. So those of you that have had children know that there's a really critical question that has to be answered and plans that have to be made um, on the day of delivery with a child. And that question is this, who gets to be in the room during the birth? Now, I was, you know, at, at our first child that was born, um, I, I kind of put my foot down and said, it's just going to be me. I don't want anybody else in there. I don't want the drama of all the people in there and all this kind of stuff. I just want me in the room. After that one, I said, somebody else can do this. <laughs> somebody else can be in this place. But, but I remember when, when our first child was born, and really for our other two children, when, when they were born, it's, it's always so special the visitors that come uh, to see you during that time. I, I, all of our family was at the hospital and they were excited and ready to see what was on both sides of our family, their very first grandson. And so it was a big deal. And I'll never forget the moment. I had the privilege of being the one to show them the, the next generation of Welches um, to our family. And so Hudson was delivered and I came out with him into this room where they kept all the babies. And all of the family was on the other side of the window. And at this point, we had had our moment, we had had our time with Hudson, and, and we had, you know, shared tears and prayed and all that kind of stuff. And here I am with my firstborn son. And I was so proud, but didn't realize how overwhelmed I would be when I saw my parents and her parents, uh, his aunts and uncles, my brother and sister and her sister out there, and then, and then people that I didn't know were gonna be there, friends that were there, that were all just gathered up around this window to see our firstborn. So it was an exciting moment, it was one, and all of a sudden my heart began to just beat and pace, and, and I, began, I began to just bawl and cry as I held my son with, with pride. Now they were, they were there with their cameras, taking pictures. They didn't care about me, they wanted to see him. And so as I gathered myself, I realized that, oh, you're here to see him, not us, not, I have nothing to do with this, really. And so I, I got up closer to the window, and I can remember they were peeking over each other and I wanted them to get just a really good shot. So I got up closer and closer to the window until I banged his head on the window. 
and it just totally killed, killed the moment. But I remember every face that was there. And for Hayden and for Hadley, every visitor that came to see us the day of their birth and the next couple of days while we were still in the hospital, those that made the trip to the house and brought meals and so forth after um, the birth, was just so significant and so special. It's a special kind of person that's invited to be a part of that. And it's a special kind of person that makes the trip and makes the journey to see something like a newborn child. When Jesus was born, the visitors that were a part of that moment are not what you would expect. We looked at last week the wise man who made the journey from the Far East, not knowing anything about the city they were coming to, nor about the family they were going to visit. They were just simply following what the Lord had put upon them to see and to know. They had come to a conclusion that this was the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. And they followed that all the way to where it led them to the feet of that child, to worship him, to present their gifts to him, to give adoration to him, to follow what the Lord had led them to see. In Luke chapter 2, we, we see almost a polar opposite type of person, not the kind of people that you would think would be invited at the moment and the night of the birth of a newborn child. Men that didn't know him, men that didn't know the family, men that really had no business being around a place like that, unlikely characters. But show us something about the heart and the nature and the reach of the one they went to visit. So draw your attention to Luke chapter 2, and if you'll pick up with me in verse 8, we're going to read about these rough and gruff, odd, outcast, and smelly men, the shepherds. Would you stand in honor of God's word this morning? Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were feel, filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told to them. You can be seated. This is a scene that we are familiar with because it's a scene that's in our nativity scene. The, the shepherds with their animals there by the crib, by the manger, uh, observing and seeing Jesus. But these were not 
the people you would think would be invited to the beautiful scene of a baby's birth. Likely these men, the only birth that they had ever seen before was the birth of their lambs. They had probably never been eyewitness and face-to-face at the birth and had even probably even held, unless they had children of their own, which we don't think they probably did, held a baby. And yet here they are. These were a rough group of people, these shepherds. The occupation of shepherd had changed over the years since the days of Jacob and even young David. It went from being a family business, one that the Jews were known for, kind of a heritage business, to being a hired out business. Shepherds in those days were despised by many different people, by Jews and by others from other nations. They spent their entire life out in the field. These men were likely lonely men. They were likely very boring men. Their occupation was very dangerous. They were protecting another animal's prey. In modern day terms, these men were were cowboys or ranch hands. They lived their life under pressure because the sheep that they watched They did not own those sheep. They were accountable for those sheep. Those sheep were owned by the ranch owner or the sheep owner. And it was their responsibility, their duty, to make sure these sheep were well-fed, well-cared for, in the right place, and all accounted for when it came time to sell the sheep. Shepherds typically had a bad reputation. We read from history in those days that they weren't considerably reliable. They were involved in theft, stealing other people's sheep. Sometimes they would drink too much, and oftentimes they wouldn't count very well. And they wouldn't count very well because more than likely they weren't educated. You didn't need to go to shepherd school. There wasn't a bachelor's degree in being a shepherd in those days. These men probably grew up near this, and as soon as they were able to leave the house, they would go get a job. And so they wouldn't oftentimes keep a proper count of things. They would then in turn steal other people's sheep. They would trespass often. They would just let the sheep grain wherever they wanted to go, graze wherever they wanted to go, and they would be found in difficult places. As a result of that, they would be involved in a lot of different fighting. You had to be a rough man and a tough man to be a shepherd. Not only did you have to fight off other animals that would come after your sheep, you had to fight off other people that would come after your sheep. In fact, history tells us that shepherds were not allowed to be witnesses in a court case of any kind because they were so unreliable, so untrustworthy, very little integrity. They were uneducated. They were probably also very improper. These were men out in the woods all the time. They probably smelled. They probably had foul mouths. In fact, they were considered ceremonially unclean for temple worship. These men had probably never even been inside the temple. But there was a tender side to these rough men. Like any ranch man or like any farmer, there is maybe a rough side, but there's also a tender side. They would would care for these sheep and ensure they were fed. They would help them. They would pick them up. 
Though they weren't at the birth of a human child, they were at the birth of many lambs. It's very possible that these particular shepherds on this night were actually the shepherds that were keeping the sheep that were used for the very temple worship and sacrifice that they were not allowed to participate in because of their uncleanliness. Isn't it interesting that these shepherds shepherded the sacrificial lambs on the very night that the great shepherd who was born to be the sacrificial lamb of God were there. It was a blue collar job. It wasn't a desirable job. It was a hard job. And these men were outcasts of society and they were outcasts of the city. It was a job that everyone needed but no one desired. When you think of the birth of Jesus, the night that he was born, what took place and where it was and those that were involved, it wasn't exactly fit and proper for the birth of a king. We, we call Jesus the king of kings and even at his birth and in his young days, these wise men that visited after the shepherds called him the king of the Jews. But the birth that he had, the setting of that place wasn't anything like a king. Not as majestic as we might imagine as we've seen it acted and displayed through the nativity. It was in the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was nowhereville. It was a podunk town on the outskirts of a washed up city of Jerusalem. This was the king of kings, the king of the world. You'd think that a person like this would be born in a palace or in a place like Athens or Rome or even the capital city, Jerusalem. But no, he was born in an outcast city that meant nothing really to the world in that day. He was born to the nation Israel. At this time, the nation of Israel was a washed up nation, insignificant globally, who had forgotten who they were and who had sold their birthright. He was born in a manger. He was born in a barn. Ladies, would, wouldn't you love that? Not a palace. Not a sterile hospital room where only a few people are allowed in the room and experts are there in, any, in case anything goes wrong. Not in the comfort of the bed there. No. A barn. Wait, what's in a barn? Well, let's just think about that. Animals live in a barn. What do animals do in a barn? Animals sleep in a barn. Animals poop in a barn. Animals eat in a barn. And that's where the king of kings, the king of the world, was was born. Not, not what you'd expect of, of a king and his parents, peasants. A young girl that everyone thought had committed adultery and a man who we don't know much about, much about other than the fact that he too was a blue collar person, a carpenter. And who would receive the invitations to this birth who would be invited to visit this new king? Would it be emperors or would it be Caesar? Would it be other kings? Would it be the high priests and other priests? Would it be prophets? Would it be wealthy and influential businessmen, leaders of the society? Would it be soldiers? Would it be scholars? No. 
The special invitation that night wasn't to any of those people who shepherds. It was an honor reserved for the lowest of the low, the least educated ranch hands who were despised, men who were filthy and unfit for a setting like this. In our modern day and time, when a child is born, the environment has to be very sterile and very clean, especially if you're giving birth through C-section, which is a surgery. Everyone has to make sure they have the proper clothes on. I remember at each of the birth of our children, I had to change clothes. I had to put a gown on, put a mask on, put a hat on, wash my hands, scrub my hands, never wash my hands as much as I've washed my hands in that moment. If anyone's been sick, sorry, you're not going in. In fact, we take that even further to the extreme. Once the baby's born, once the baby's alive, once the baby's slept and gone home. I mean, we really are cautious about who's around our baby for years and years and years. I mean, the way the doctors work now is like, if someone's coughing, you don't need to be around that person for the next six months. Forbid you to let them hold your baby. Until maybe you're like on your third child, and then you know nothing's gonna kill him, it's gonna be fine, and all that kind of stuff. But we're so cautious and so careful about, about how clean things need to be and who holds and who sees and what they do. But these filthy, smelly, unwanted men who were not told anywhere in the story that we can see that they were asked to please, would you wash your hands before you come in the room? No, they were invited to the birth of a king, outcast of society, but on this night they were favored by heaven as if to set the tone for the entire life, ministry, and message of Jesus, this baby whom they saw. This baby would grow up and this, this baby that became a man would have three years, just three years, to make an impact on this world for eternity. When you look at the ministry of the gospel and the word of the gospel and the ministry of Jesus, it only accounts for about three years of his adult life. All the stories that we read, all the healings, all the miracles, all the traveling that Jesus did that led up to the cross only accounted for about three years. Three years to make an impact. Who would he spend his time with? Who would he invest in in those times? And time and time again through the Gospels, we see Jesus spending time with tax collectors and sinners. And a Samaritan woman who had been married five times and was currently shacking up to a man she wasn't married to. We see him kneeling down and taking up the cause of an adulterous woman who was about to be stoned. We see him touch lepers with his hands, not afraid to approach and heal demon-possessed men, always allowing the crowds 
to constantly press in on him, deprive him of sleep, and beg him for help, and beg him for food, and beg him for healing. As we turn the pages of the gospel, as we look at the days and the weeks and the months and these three years of Jesus, we see him with the sick and with the needy, with the sinners. And on this night, this first night, it's with shepherds. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus said himself in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. which echoes what is said in Psalm 149, verse 4. He crowns the humble with salvation. There's an interesting story. I actually read it this morning in my time with the Lord, a story that Jesus tells. It's in Luke chapter 14, and this gets to the heart of, of Jesus and who he reaches out for. In verse 16, Jesus tells this story, and he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I, Well, I, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And others said, I, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I, I, have, a married, I have married a wife, and, and therefore I cannot come. And then another said, we have been so busy this holiday season. We, we, need, we need to take a break off this. Another one said, so, so our kids have, have got this travel soccer or travel baseball this weekend, so we're not going to be able to be there. We're so sorry. Or we, we've been at every one of these things for the past six weeks, and we're just going to have to skip out on, on this one. Or I, I've got a little cough, or it has been a really crazy, busy, hectic time at work, 60, 70 hours this week. I need, I need a break. So busy, so consumed. I haven't got the house cleaned this weekend yet. The Panthers are playing. And so the servant came in verse 21 and reported these things to the master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and there's still room. 
And the master said to the servant, then go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. That night, there was an invitation. But the invitation wasn't for those that you would expect, wasn't for those righteous, wasn't for those who knew all the facts, wasn't for those who were known and respected by society. It wasn't for those who were of a certain race or of a certain demographic. It wasn't for those who would bring some sort of clout to the birth of this child. No, the invitation was to those who were outcast, who were far away, who weren't even allowed to worship the father of this child in the very temple that he had set up to worship him. And the invitation was, come, come as you are, unworthy and filthy, to see the one who's come for you. Just as these shepherds, with their dirty hands and their dirty hearts, so too this same invitation with our dirty hands and our dirty hearts who have failed. Just as these shepherds worked in the darkness of the night, so we too live in the darkness of sin. These unlikely characters show us this, that this child came for us. Because we are where those shepherds are. And the invitation that he gives, these angels proclaim and give, is the invitation that he gives to us. He came to touch those in the pits of life. He didn't come for people who have it all together and who think that they are good enough to get to the Father. He came for people who realize that their sin has separated them from God. And because of that sin and because of that separation, they are destined for an eternity away from him. They are hopeless and without help. And listen, friend, if you think you are close to God and if you think that you are going to get yourself there and if you think you're almost there and you're, you are so, so far away. It is the humble that he exalts. It is those of us that realize and come to the place where we recognize we cannot save ourselves. We are unworthy. And it's in that that he says, come. This child came for these men. This child came for you. There they were, unfit, unclean, wondering why? Why us? I mean, it says that they were afraid. They were shocked by the whole setting. I mean, it would have been shocking anyway. They'd never seen anything like this before in their lives. And now they have these angelic hosts, these angels singing and speaking and something they'd never seen before, probably something they'd never forget. We see how much it changed their life in the latter part in verse 20, how they returned glorifying God and praising God for all that they'd seen and heard. It had changed their lives. But, but why us? Why, why here 
Why now? Well, verse 10, what the angel says tells us everything. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day in the city of David is, a, uh, is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We bring you good news. This word in the Greek language is the word euangelion, which is the Greek word where we get the word gospel. We bring you the gospel of great joy. That's exactly what the gospel, what this baby Jesus Christ came to give joy. He said it himself in John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. The gospel gives joy. The inward feeling of happiness and contentment that is not met and not thwarted by the circumstances of life. And it comes to the most likely and unlikely people. You see, joy centers not on something you earn or possess. Our world is striving for joy and striving for happiness, that if I just have a little bit more, that if I just can get to this place, if I can just have these circumstances around, then everything will be fine. But listen, that's not where joy comes from. It comes from God's gift through this son. This tiny baby clasps heaven's greatest title, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And I want you to notice very carefully what he says at the end of this. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And there it is. That truth illustrated in these men. What kind of people? The worst of people. The furthest of people. All people. The smartest of people and the dumbest of people. The richest of people and the poorest of people. The most messed up, failed people, and what society deems as the most successful leaders of people. All people. Whether you are fat or skinny, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are white or black or anything else in between, whether you are American or whether you are not American, all people whether you know something about the Bible or whether you don't even know where the table of contents can be found in this book, all people, this child came for you. And these men, their lives would never be the same again. The sky would never seem so dark again. Just as they returned to keep watch over their flocks by night, they realized someone greater was keeping watch over them. That's what Jesus does. Come as you are and never leave the same. There is a great hymn that says this, come unto me and I'll lead you home to live with me eternally. 
saved by his power divine, saved to new life sublime. Life now is sweet and my joy is complete for I am saved, saved, saved. That's what this baby came to do, to save you. And church, that's what this baby came to do that we possess in our heart who's given us the call and mission to take his gospel, his good news of great joy for all people. This city of Charlotte needs that gospel and he has tasked you and me, he has put us together to share that gospel with this city and this state and this nation and this world, all 